It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. This is Jill Riley, and I'm with my guest today, Joseph Reed. Joseph, it's nice to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Again, full disclosure, (laughs) full disclosure, I had a little technology glitch, and this is the second conversation we've had, but it's good. We enjoyed the first one, so let's do it again. Yeah, let's just rinse, repeat. That's what I'm talking about. No kidding. So let me just tell you a little bit about Joseph. He is the founder and executive director of Broken People. He has a bachelor's degree from Liberty University in interdisciplinary studies and leads a support group with the nation's largest grassroots mental health movement, NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And Joseph talks about um, being hospitalized for depression and being diagnosed with manic depression, medicated a lot and sent home with a large medical bill and not becoming a better person, and then being hospitalized again for three weeks and receiving help and guidance, a correct diagnosis of major depressive disorder and trichotillomania, coping skills, medication, and a whole lot of support, and it made a difference for him. In 2018, he lost his best friend to suicide, and it was his uh, mental health support, and he fell alone and broken, and this catapulted him into broken people. And so that is just a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. So whereabouts in the world are you, Joseph? I have no idea where I am. I am in Western Michigan. Western Michigan. Yeah, Grand Rapids. Very good. Well, tell us something about yourself that was not covered in the bio. Okay, so I've got five things, and I'm going to let you choose which one we're going to focus on. And it may be completely different than like the first recording, which is fabulous. Okay, um, hit me. So, um, so I have been a minister, a police officer. Uh, I tell interesting stories. Uh, I do music, and I am an artist. Okay, what kind of music do you do? Um, I uh, <laughs> I do weird songs. So um, I write a lot of music for my kids when they were younger. I would at nighttime I would just grab my guitar and just write songs that were pretty active um, and related to something either going on in their lives or something going on in their school or something they need to learn about. Um, for my wife this year, I wrote a song for as her Christmas present um, and it had some gifts incorporated with the song and some friends helped me record it. So yeah, just some, you know, just some really easily, easy listening love songs or anything that I'm connected to emotionally. I uh, will write a song about, I, I'm an aspiring rapper who will always only be an aspiring rapper. But, uh, <laughs> You're never going to go I'm, in the big leagues. I never, I, you know, I, I'm just choosing not to, I'm just going to say that. I, not that I have limitations beset upon me from other people, but it's probably best that I don't, although I'm a, I'm a huge fan of hip hop and hip hop and, uh, that, that genre. Um, so yeah. Nice. I have a friend who, um, 
who works in a university setting and teaches classes on hip hop theology. Oh, wow. Very interesting. <laughs> hip hop so is kind loaded of, with so much good theology. Nice. I, I don't know anything about it. Hip hop is not, is not my jam. <laughs> <laughs> so what, uh, what kind of art do you do? Um, so ever since I was in elementary school, I have drawn mazes. And um, this is something that really uh, fits well with my mental health condition. I just, it, it helps focus me uh, away from some of the more uh, difficult thoughts that I have. And I literally make full functioning mazes uh, wherever and whenever I can um, on styrofoam cups. Uh, my wife and I first, when we first got married, I was able to put one on our bedroom wall, although she the stipulation for putting one on our bedroom wall was that she got to choose the color. Nice. So, um, yeah, we give them away for Christmas presents. Uh, you know, I've been on the news for drawing mazes. Um, it's just, it's a really OCD thing to do. And it, it, it focuses my attention away from my, my difficulties. Nice. Is that, is that, yeah. So, um, so what is the largest maze you've done? So my mazes are generally speaking, and I know you're asking the full scale of it, but the lines are very, very small. So to say that my maze was four feet by eight feet, uh, four feet by 12 feet, um, it, it, it's quite the huge undertaking. Um, to, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was pretty significant. And um, I incorporated like the ABCs in it for my kids. I put my family's names in it. You know, I did different kind of like art types like three-dimensional and just different kind of things in it to make it kind of fun and cool and so you were in I, the zen you were in the zen doodle craze before it was cool yes i was i actually think that i uh i introduced zen cool uh to the world uh, via <laughs> i like mazes. it all right so you got to tell me you've got the i like turtle shirt on today what is it about turtles that you like yes yeah, so this involves um uh a brief stint with drug use, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was, it was sanctioned drug use. I uh, had just gotten out of the hospital and the doctors would just had uh, out of the psychiatric hospitals and doctors like way medicated me way, way too much. And uh, I was going on a trip with a bunch of eighth graders uh, to Washington DC from, from Michigan. So it was about an 18 hour drive on a bus with several hundred kids. Um, yeah. And there's like, Hey, here's a milligram of Xanax. And I didn't know if a milligram is a lot, but my mother-in-law takes like 0.3 milligrams and that knocks her flat. So a milligram seems like quite a bit. And so I took this medication to help me kind of just relax on the bus ride. And there are these kids around me that kind of were referencing this old YouTube video where they're like, oh, I like turtles. And it was, it was going around. And if you're going to say that around a person that's like in the throes of a deep Xanax induced coma, <laughs> Like it's going to stick. Um, so then I'm like, Oh, for all of a sudden I feel like, you know, this brainwashing coming over where I like turtles. And uh, so I was like going kind of just being silly. Like whenever I feel like an awkward moment, I'll be like, I like turtles. Cause I don't know what else to say. Um, but then when I got to therapy and I started learning about uh, dialectical behavior therapy um, there, the turtle was kind of like a metaphor for how to live life. And um, so there's this thing that, that uh, I was learned, I, I learned through my therapist called turtle times three, which is just really, whenever you're faced with a difficult decision, 
you pause, you think about how you're act, how you're going to act, you pause again and you pause again, and then you make a decision. Um, but then it's, it's a metaphor or an analogy for me too, whenever I'm in the throes of like a deep depressive episode where I can just, I can find a safe place. It's okay to hide in your shelf for, for a short time um, until it's safe to come out and then you can start move forward again. Um, and I just encourage people to, um, to take advantage of those safe places when you're, when you, you kind of feel like you should be doing a lot more than, than you are, but whenever I should all over myself, like I just, then yeah. I know I, I need to, I need to hide for a minute. I need to take a second and just step back and, and make sure I'm safe before I, because there have been situations where I am in the middle of emotional crisis and I make some pretty significant decisions that are just stupid. They're just stupid. Yeah. So you wait for that storm to calm and then you can climb out of your shell and to see where you're going, right. To see what direction you're going. And, and the great thing about turtles too, is they move slowly. Nothing, nothing <laughs> needs to happen fast, you know? Um, yeah. Way more I, deliberate. Yeah. Like God wasn't like, uh, uh, I'm going to make the world in one day. He's like, I'm going to spread it out. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he could have done it. So, well, you know, Tell me a little bit about DBT. What is um, the dialectical behavioral therapy? What I don't, I don't understand what that is. Well, uh, dialectical behavioral therapy is really just uh, common sense for dummies. Uh, (laughs) Kind of how I look at it. I, I, I know that I have some social skills, Um, like dealing with conflict, knowing what to do in a crowded room, knowing how to like ask for things when you want them. like those are things that weren't very common or uh, easy for me to do um, or even to be assertive. You know, I would either be very, very passive or very, very aggressive, but I can never find that middle ground that was nice. And they talk about that middle ground as wise mind. Um, mm. You know, it's the emotional mind versus this really aggressive mind. Um, you know, you want to find that, that center point of where, where, where's your sweet spot. So what dialectical behavioral therapy does, which is really like, uh, like it's a, it's a branch off of cognitive behavior therapy and cognitive just refers to your mind. Um, and if you look, you, you break the word down behavior therapy, it's like, how are you supposed to behave? Um, and it really helps me a lot in, in social settings as small as like an intimate conversation with my wife to, uh, you know, a complete, you know, fairly complete stranger, like talking on a podcast or like interacting with, um, groups of people just like with, with my broken people, small groups, you know, Mm -hmm. how do I, what's appropriate to say, what's not appropriate to say. And I'm just learning that there's a lot more things that I I thought were inappropriate that really are just quite appropriate to say. Uh, And it's just a matter of like knowing, um, you know, knowing and having good boundaries in in your life and dialectical behavior therapy just really kind of, kind of uh, shows me um, it's therapy that kind of showed me the way in a, in a okay. sense to how to, how to live socially. Interesting. Well, I've never heard an explanation of that. So tell me a little bit about your journey with mental illness and mental health that started pretty young. Yeah. So, um, it was second grade as the, the earliest recollection I have of, of, uh, mental health situations. My secondary teacher went to my parents and just express concern for how I was interacting with peers. I was just really standoffish. I was, uh, you know, had a very melancholy, sad, um, um, not feeling good enough kind of mentality about me, mm. scared of interacting with people, 
um, really struggling educationally. Um, and, and not, and not feeling smart enough, not feeling good enough. And it was just beating myself up from a very early age. Um, and, um, yeah. And then, you know, I think that leaving things, uh, undealt with like that for years upon years and, and back in the 1980s, it wasn't something that they really knew a whole lot to do with, right. um, in, in such a small scale. I think they had asylums and stuff like that, that they would do with like hard, hardcore cases. But, um, you know, growing up in the church, you know, the, the number one thing to do with that was just, you know, pray, pray about it and, mm-hmm. and seek God's counsel. And, and I'm not saying that's a horrible thing, but it can be a horrible thing when there are better options, um, uh, or, right. or, uh, or, or options. Cause I, I don't think there's a magic pill for anything, um, mm-hmm. whether it be therapy, literal pills or, um, I'm a big fan of exercise and dieting, um, you know, how we, how we eat. So, you know, I, I, I can fast forward to, you know, 2001, I was married and, you know, I had warned my wife big time that I had serious problems, never really called it mental illness, but I just, I was just like, I used to tell her, I'm just weird. I do weird things and I don't know why. And I don't know why I think, it's um, but I had been doing a lot of journaling. I was drawing pictures of myself uh, doing acts of suicide. Oh. Uh, I was, journal- I was journaling a lot about, you know, uh, suicide and just trying to convince myself to kind of build up the machismo or whatever it is that people think you got to have to do something that you think is courageous, but is really stupid. And did um, she know that you were, that you were considering that at that point? Yeah. Yeah. She had found, um, some drawings that I had of, uh, I, I had some pretty explicit drawings um, of me trying to kill myself and, um, yeah. And that concerned her. So one night when I got home from work, she sat me down on the couch is like, you know, either, either you go to the hospital tonight or, uh, I'm going to call the police and have them come take you to the hospital. Oh yeah. And I had, I had been, and she had consulted with my therapist at the time, um, letting her know what was going on. And so, they had a very affirming relationship, uh, very helpful to my wife that, that my therapist would, was willing to work with her and talk with her. Yeah. Um, so that was, your, that was your uh, first hospitalization. Tell me a little bit about that one. Yeah. So that involved, um, yeah, there's a lot <laughs> I could go into with that. <laughs> it was, it was a nightmare. It was frightening. Uh, so I don't remember my first week there cause I was just drugged so much. Like that was the go-to was let's, let's medicate. Um, and I know that the doctors and nurses were just doing the best they could. Um, and I went in there, was like, Oh sweet. I got a, I got a vacation where I can work on my Bible studies and I can uh, do a lot of research and I can be helpful to all these other people that are here. So I kind of went in with this mentality if I'm going to help people. Um, right. And, and that made it really hard for me to get the help that I needed. So they're like, Hey, well, you're not getting the help you need. So we're going to drug you until you can't help anybody else. <laughs> I'm not sure that, that was the complete mindset behind it, but that's what happened. I don't remember seven days of my, my experience there. Um, and the days that I do remember some pretty crazy crap happened. Uh, there was um, a lady that I woke up one night and she was standing half in her underwear in a, in a shirt, just next to my bed, just staring at me. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So I wake up and I'm just like, uh, hi, uh, there were, um, 
there were a couple people that were having sex in the showers during, you know, in between the 15 minute, um, you know, room searches and whatever, they would time it and they would go in the shower and, and, uh, you know, it it seemed like an ideal place to pick up a a, a woman, you know, for a a relationship, but honestly, it's not the best, you know, I I highly recommend to your listeners not to go to psychiatric hospital to find a relationship. Um, (laughs) What could go wrong there? What could possibly go wrong? yeah, if you if you get anything out of this podcast, <laughs> that's that's one. Um, a, a couple other things like uh, I had a like I was looking for something to do, so some guy brought me some gun magazines to look at. So we were looking at firearms and, and oh my goodness! So not not the best kind of reading choices that were there. Wow. And then the okay, last, tell me this. Time. Tell me the story about the finger. That's where I'm going. Yeah. So the finger was the, the last night of the night before, um, which I, which, so two nights before I, I get discharged, they pull me out of one of my classes and they say, Oh, by the way, here's a couple thousand dollars worth of bills that you're going to have to pay while I'm in the therapy. They pull me out of a therapy class to tell me this. And I'm like, Oh, well, I just relapsed a little bit, you know, <laughs> like yeah. wow, this is a whole other stress to, to deal with that. You show me this huge bill. But that night, um, there was this guy, he was brought in and um, he had this thing where he just liked to sit on people's beds naked. So he would, it was late at night and he would go into people's rooms. He would pull down his pants, sit on their bed. And I don't know if he was like waiting, like he waited for like the temperature to get to a certain warmth. He just liked the feel of the cool sheets on his tushy. Um, but he would pull up his pants and go to another bed and, you know, rinse and repeat. He would. Oh you my know. goodness. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, some people didn't like that. Um, and so they went to the staff and was like, Hey, you know, this guy is, he's just really concerning. And, and so the staff was like, you know, they have this room on the, behind the, behind the desk where they put people that are, that are struggling, you know, for safety issues or whatever. And they were going to put this guy in, in that room. And he, like, I don't know if you can remember it, like some weird, scary movies, like in, in like horror movies where like people start quoting scripture and right. like, they have this prophetic moment. Well, he just starts quoting scripture as they're trying to pull him to, or I don't even know if it was scripture. Honestly, I don't know. I was a little freaked out because he was really loud. Um, and they started pulling him to this room, this pad is literally padded room. And um, finally he's like, you know, he's like, nope, I'm not going. And he, he they all end up on the floor. And, you know, they're trying to subdue him, get him. I, I don't know what they're going to do. Like there was a, a man and a woman nurse that were trying to help him really just doing the best they can without hurting him, honestly. Right. And, and then, you know, I'm kind of freaking out. I'm trying to get the guy to calm down. They're right outside my door, my, 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 the, my dorm room or whatever you want to call it, hospital room. And, and I was like, dude, man, he's like, you know, he's like, help me, help me. And, and I'm like, just, just calm down and just tell, do what they're telling you to do. They're not trying to hurt you. And the lady, the nurse just yells at me to get back into my room. So I'm like, yes, ma'am, I, I'm in my room and I'm shutting the door and it's getting really intense. And um, next thing I hear from the other side of the door is, you know, the, the woman nurse is like, or the guy nurse is like, he's pulling my hand toward his, his mouth and the, and, um, and then all of a sudden I hear this, this crunch, uh, this, you know, it's, in, it's, my, it's in my mouth, you know, it's my fingers in his mouth and he's biting down. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm yelling through, through the door, like drug him, somebody, get, you know, I don't know if you could do this legally in hospital, <laughs> but like, 
grab a needle and like, you know, shoot, grab a twinkle. Don't you have tranquilizer guns in these places? I have no idea. But he, he bit off this worker's finger, spit it in front of my door. Ugh. I hear nurses running for ice. Um, and I'm like, I'm freaking, I'm just, I'm, I'm now braced full body against the door. All 109 pounds of myself is, is, uh, just pushing on that door. And, you know, the nurses are calling for help and I'm like, not me. I'm, I'm staying behind this door. Um, but fortunately there were a couple patients that came and helped while, while several other patients were having panic attacks, um, at that time. Um, and, you know, again, this is just two days before I'm supposed to get out. And, what and, a uh, nightmare. Yeah. And, you know, but then I just remember this extreme calm, the police show up, you know, they come around the corner. I'm kind of peeking through my door and he put the, put their big old boot on his back and said, this is over. And I just remember the calm and peace that came over me. And, uh, interestingly enough, I had a good opportunity that night to pray with one of the women that was having a pretty severe panic attack. And, and, you know, I, I didn't go around preaching about who I was christ whatever she's like hey will you pray with me i want to give my heart to jesus i'm like yeah i'll, I'll pray with you i'm like uh wow you know and I, yeah it was it was kind of a weird night the president of the hospital came and was just just sitting with us we were watching movies we were up really really late and uh what a mess what a mess it was is a that is you know, that is traumatizing i am you know and and when you're institutionalized and you're in a place like that um your sensitivities are heightened because they take away Mm -hmm. all the external external um you know distractions and so your sensitivity is high plus you're dealing Mm -hmm. with your own stuff so it just really compounds anything traumatic that happens yeah. And I never wanted to go back. Like it makes sense that I would never want to go back to a hospital because I would never like the PTSD. I, I, I guess it would be PTSD. I was never diagnosed with PTSD, but heck, I did not want to do anything like that ever again. It was scary to me. But you did. I did. Yeah. Hooray for me. <laughs> <laughs> so you went back in the hospital in 2013? Yes. Yes, I, that was, that was a very strategic thing on my part. I, I knew that I was heading in a dark road. So I began meeting with my pastor and calling with a few, called a few friends just to get things set up so that when I spoke to my wife that night and told her that I needed to go, that she would have a lot of support. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had financial support arranged prior to, um, we ended up losing our home. Um, in relationship to that experience, because I wasn't able, I wasn't able to work, um, and we got for, it was during the foreclosure period. So, you know, it was well, it was right after because that was like 2007 to 2009 was a great recession, mm. and um, so it's still foreclosures were happening well into you know 2013, 2014. Uh, right. So, anyways, yeah. So my buddy, uh, I had just met this guy, uh, Pastor Nathan. He was our worship pastor at our church, and he had just come out of this particular hospital and he was uh, a huge advocate for mental health. And he was like, you're going to be okay, man. You're going to go in there and I'm going to be with you and I'll come visit you. I will bring you Oreos and sweet tea every day, which he did. Um, and uh, you know, he, when he went in the hospital afterwards, I was there for him. I stuck to me food too, all, all the time. We were sneaking food. All, we were just major contraband going on <laughs> in terms of Oreos, Oreos and recent peanut butter cups. But you know, <clears throat> he was, you know, he literally held my hand. Him and my pastor, my wife held my hand to the hospital and made sure that, you know, that I understood it It was a safe place. Um, And I was able truly to get some amazing help at this second hospital I went to. Um, 
And so yeah. this is where they diagnosed you with the major depressive disorder. Yeah. Yeah. So originally at the previous hospital, I was diagnosed with manic, manic depression, which became bipolar, um, which was completely an an incorrect diagnosis. But again, they were doing the best they could with what they had. Um, And at the new hospital, like they, they re-diagnosed me. And I don't remember if it was them in collaboration with my doctor, my therapist. I had a really great team at that time, um, which really, which kind of makes sense because I like, even going in there, like I had a really good plan, a really good support team um, going into it, which a lot of things I mentioned in my book, Broken Like Me, are, are things that I had in place even at that time that really helped me transition into the hospital uh, in, a, in a, and know when I needed to be there in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. So tell me what trichotillomania is. Yeah, so trichotillomania was like I, I became a pet project uh, uh, when I was in the hospital <laughs> and it was kind of fun. Uh, might I also say that I was elected mayor, I mean, sorry, governor, uh, governor, mental health. uh, yeah, by the other patients in the, in the, in the mental health. Congrats. Yes. Governor Joe. Um, and you know, when you have a lot of crazy people voting for you, that that's a vote of confidence. Um, so it was, it was fantastic. Um, so what was your question again? I just wanted to put out there that I used to be governor. (laughs) Trichotillomania. Yeah. So Trichotillomania is an anxiety disorder uh, where people pull out their hair, um, and and um, it's it's uh, it is also dermatillomania, which is probably more common. But people don't talk about these things very often. Where people will pick their skin to the point where it's bleeding. It's just how mm-hmm. you deal with anxiety and stress. Um, and I'm very very open about it because I think it you know that kind of exposure. I have enough support around me to talk about these things openly. But I have. I have gaps in my hair. I don't know if you can see it today because, you know, we're doing a Zoom video right now. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure, pretty sure your podcast audience can't see it, but, you know, maybe we'll put some pictures out there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, you know, I, I pull the hair out to the point where I can get pretty serious infections on my face. And it's usually on my face. Um, you know, another, you know, people sometimes will eat the hair, um, you know, see people with it, And it's very surprisingly very common. Um, but not talked about at all. There are, there's like one Facebook group and you know, if there's only one Facebook group on something, you know, it's like, what's like, there's a, there's a million NASCAR Facebook groups. There's a million mental health. Why is there only one trichotillomania Facebook group? I don't know, but, um, but it's very, uh, it can be very embarrassing. I think people will, will try to hide this and, and I try to expose the things that people try to hide just to, just to bring humanity to it. And that's one of the great things about dialectical behavior therapy is it tries to normalize some of these things so that people can actually get the help that they need. Yeah. Yeah. Shake the stigmas around, around them. Yeah. Did I mention I like turtles? You did mention you like turtles. Okay. I just didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't want to let that go out, but by with the interview, if I didn't no, say anything about No, no, we, we got that. <laughs> We got that covered. So, okay. Okay. So 2018 was a turning point in your life. Tell us about that. Yeah. So God's weird, right? You know, he got his own way of doing things. And one of the things I love about, about God is he, he takes broken things that weren't, that he never meant to be broken and makes them, uh, and transforms them into beautiful things. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. That's the whole process of redemption. Um, in 2017, you know, I've been out of the hospital for a few years and I had all these systems of life, let's just call them ways of doing life that really worked for me. Um, 
and, and were really helping me live with a mental health disorder and live with a quality of life that is fa- fairly decent, you know, um, having some, some just really great boundaries and, and such. And I, I went to this organizational developer. He had worked with one of the governors of Michigan on the family council of therapy. Um, and, um, and I just wanted to go to him. It's like, Hey, will you mentor me? Will you take a look at all of these things that make me meet and maybe point me in a specific direction? And when I asked him if he'd mentor me for free, he's like, nah, but <laughs> you, uh, you know, your, your story is incredible and you are doing some incredible things. It looks like to me, he said that you're just looking for some kind of catalyst or some kind of event to kind of push you in a specific direction, you know, where God would, 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 would take all of these things and, and kind of, uh, guide you toward, toward one thing with those. And, uh, so I walked away from that just feeling really discouraged. Like I thought this guy was the key to, you know, the, the solution to my, my burdening problem of not knowing what to be when I grow to, when I, when I growed up, I should write a book. I have all the good words. Um, <laughs> uh, when I growed up. So, and I was probably 38 and still trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up, still trying to figure that out. But I think I have it pretty nailed down now. So anyways, fast forward 2018. January 25th, I get a phone call. Um, my friend Nathan had had already attempted suicide twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been visiting him at a hospital. And uh, the third time he, he attempted it, he was successful. <clears throat> it was mm-hmm. all in a matter of three or four months that he had done this. Um, and I got that phone call. And that that conversation I had with that organizational developer come back to mind where it's like, you know, you're waiting for this, like there's going to be an event that's going to push you in one direction. And without a doubt, like this is the the surest I I, I can think um, of ever receiving a call from God to do something specific uh, was, was this, like he, he basically just hit me with a bulldozer and said, this is where I, this is what I want you to do with, with all of the shit that you've been through in your life. Yeah. Like yeah. I want to, I've, I've been planting and I've been nurturing your soil and I knew something was going to happen. Like he said to me, but I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to use you to take care of others. Um, and, you know, and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I began, you know, just asking for help and asking for wisdom from people that are smarter than me. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's a reason, great reason to be on this podcast. Cause you know, you're somebody that has just a ton of education and you're, you're doing great things uh, for for your community and your world, which is way larger because you have technology. Um, and to be able to just share that, uh, yeah. to be able to, to be here with you is just another another avenue that that God is uh, using for the redemption of, of people's hearts and minds. Yeah. Well, so was there a vision of, um, as you began to talk to people, was there a vision of what was to become broken people or, or were you just kind of trying to figure that out? Yeah. So I, I, I think that the, the, the first thing that came to mind is I needed to write a book. Um, and I think that's what a lot of people feel like when they have an, uh, an epiphany of some sorts, like I got to write a book <laughs> and, uh, my wife, she's a manager at Starbucks and she's, she works with a guy and you know, one of her customers comes in and he works with people that want to write books. And when he heard my story, he's like, you don't really want to write a book. It sounds like to me that you, you want to start a movement, a ministry. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, we don't, the world does not need one more ministry. Um, 
you know, we either need to effectively use the ones that we have or just cancel them all. I don't know. Um, <laughs> There's no in but, between. <laughs> yeah, I, that's how. Yeah, bipolar. I'm, I'm not. Um, <laughs> I uh, so I was like, I'll do a thing. I'll do a thing. He's like, Yeah, just maybe just get a, you know put put it out there and and see who would want to be a part of a group like that. And then, you know, work on your book, you know, get the draft written and, 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 and just put your story out there. So I'm like, well, I guess I got to do social media. Right. Um, right. That's the only way I know how to do it. <clears throat> and uh, broken people comes from this idea. Like whenever I'm at my lowest point, I just, I think of myself as broken. That's still how I feel myself. Like I'm just broken. Um, and not like broken, like as a beautiful thing, as in broken, like I'm just, I'm just junk, you know? Um, there's nothing the pretty. Yeah, there's nothing pretty about me. It's just I'm I'm worthless and and and, and you know a, a toy that's a, t- a toy car that's never gonna work again. Yeah. Um, so you did so end up I writing did, the book, right? Broken like me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's had different names through through time, and 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 each time I put a new title on it, it's helped me get it to the next level. Um, yeah, and I wrote the draft within like two or three days when I was in the hospital for, for a different health related condition. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I got it, I got it done and it's coming out uh, June 1st for my launch team and then June 8th for the public. Um, that's yeah, so great. It, it's that's, out there. That's great. So then wow. broken people is a website, right? Yep. And um, the website, you know, the best way I can describe it is just a resource for people um, you know, I mean, it's really well thought out. You click on a link if you're feeling hopeless and it sends you to a video and sends you to information and, you know, downloads of PDFs. And I mean, all of this amazing resource for people who are feeling lost and hopeless, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So the website is www.broken-people.org. Um, and, and I really put it together. Like I'm not a web designer, so I put it together as like, what would be helpful for me? And, um, it was like, okay, I stupid. It's gotta be stupid. Simple. They gotta have two choices. So the, when you go to the main page, there's like, if you feel broken, click here. If you love somebody that feels broken, go here. Cause there are different resources. Um, and then like, it's kind of funny. Like when you first click on that, that, you know, I feel broken, like there's a whole list of like, what exactly are you feeling? You know, what right. is your, what is your issue? And then if you, if you go into a computer, if you, if you go into those boxes, there actually are jokes in there if you if you if you access it from your lap your laptop or whatever because i i know that distraction is such a huge part of just helping us get to um a mindset of you know kind of getting out of our own our our own minds because a lot of times the pro- biggest problem is is that we're so consumed with our own thoughts and our mindset that we can't um we can't steer clear of right of our issues um, and distraction is such a great way it's it's a dbt skill it's a coping skill that's really helpful helped me out a lot um, so the jokes and you click on those and then, yeah, you got videos, music videos are, are a huge thing. Um, you know, PDF documents that you can download for free that, that are skills that you can use to deal with just about any situation, I think. Well, and, I think and, the, the breadcrumb, um, trail through, through the website is really logical. At least it made sense to me. So. Yeah, that's cool. I'm glad. And, and, you know, one of the, one of the huge things I love too about the website that was really important to me was to create uh, a mental health hero award. And this is a national award 
um, so the people that deal with a mental health condition can go on there and nominate people that just do the little things that really mm-hmm. uh, that mean a lot to them. Because I, I really do want to highlight that. And and every month we have a new, we have a national hero. Um, who this month for May we have a psychologist that works with veterans that won the award, and not because she's a psychologist, but just because the veteran was just like she just really cares. And and that's really all it takes is just for somebody to say they just make a little difference in my life because it's the little things that really do a lot. Yeah. Um, and I love giving out that award. Uh, it's one of my favorite things in the world to do. That's cool. So the overarching uh, simple goal of broken people is what? And suicide, I think, is uh, is one yeah. of the one of the things like I, you know, and I know I can't do it and, you know, for the entire world. I mean, I say that, but maybe I can. But but just to reach the next person, you know, who might need that help, you know, one person um, and, and, and to give people tools to, you know, in the book, I talk about the mental health scale. So so providing tools for people to communicate with loved ones exactly how they're doing and, and in a way that makes sense. That's practical. Mm-hmm. And I think it really does take somebody from the inside. Like my my subtitle is an insider's toolkit for many broken people. Like this, it, it's it's been really helpful for me to communicate with other people with a mental health condition to say, this is what I created as somebody that deals with this as an effective way to deal with this. Right. <laughs> um, right. And and having a having a scale to communicate with people that that love you and are in your 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 village of. of of uh, mental health healing has been really, really helpful. Well, you know, in the church, we talk about, you know, insider language and language that is used that only church people will understand. Um, right. And and it's the same thing, I think, with mental health is there is there is some in, insider kind of dialogue that you really um, only understand from from the inside of a brain that has dealt with it. So I yeah. I am glad that you are a part of that conversation. Yeah. And I think a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people on the, on the outside, um, I think a lot of people, can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Yeah. A lot of people on the outside of, of, a, of a mental health issue might say, you know, and even people in my shoes will say, you're not alone. You're not alone. And, and it's a cliche that, that I know is well-intentioned, um, but doesn't help me at all. Right. Uh, so in my book and through broken people, you know, through the stories that I share that are very vulnerable, not very pretty at all, sometimes funny, is I want to show people who feel broken like me, the title of the book, um, that they're not alone. Yeah. Because they'll be able to relate to some of the weird things that I, weird ways I think and weird ways that I, I deal with issues um, or the weird struggles that I have. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of a lot of weird stuff that can make you feel really isolated and alone, and that that isolation and aloneness really just it, uh, aggravates the illness, right? right. It makes it worse. Well, thank you for doing your part to uh, help people to not feel alone. And I appreciate your time and the things that you're doing. And I'm just I'm just glad to be a little a little piece of your world. Thanks. And, 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 and you're a, a huge piece of, of your listeners world. So um, it's the little pieces you know, of the puzzle that, that really make the picture. Um, Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Hey, well, real quick. Um, did I mention my, my fascination with turtles? <laughs> uh, I, you have. <laughs> okay. Cause I like them a lot. And, and yeah. So I just wanted to put that out there for your listeners. 
uh, <laughs> we've yeah. we got it. We got it. Message got loud it. and okay, clear. Clear. All right. All right. Fantastic. Bye, Joe. Thank you so much, Jill. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram, JillRiley.author, and Twitter, JillRileyAuthor. To contact Jill, email Jill at JillRiley.org.